0: Any species that overproduces like humans have is almost always hit with major pandemics right to write the balance, and humans are ripe for extreme uh, amount of suffering, as, in fact, many of the smarter people in various governments know, and we've seen actually more and more money go into preparing for a potential pandemic. This is why we see health officials around the world always a quite upset or an avian flu, so-called, becomes... Uh, You know, there's a recent breakout now happening in the Far East. Twenty people have died, a very fatal form of avian flu. But now it's only infectious from the chickens to the humans. If it becomes infectious between humans, we could see hundreds of millions of people die in a matter of months.
1: I think the coronavirus was, I was reading a couple of articles recently, was uh, very, there were some very dangerous developments with that recently. My name is Nicola and you're watching Singularity FM, the place where we interview the future. If you guys enjoy this podcast, you can help me make it better in a couple of ways. Number one is you can go to iTunes and write a brief review. Or number two is you can go to interviewthefuture.com and simply make a donation. Today, for the second time, seven and a half years later, my guest on the show again will be Chris Habels Gray. Chris Habels Gray is the author of Postmodern War, Cyborg Citizen and Peace, War and Computers. He is a continuing lecturer and fellow at Crown College, University of California at Santa Cruz and most recently of course. Uh, Chris is one of the editors of a fantastic upcoming new book called Modified, Living as a Cyborg, where I have to uh, publicly disclose, I have a tiny minuscule contribution. Basically, I threw in a sand grain, whereas Chris brought in the shovel and, and brought like a, mon- a mountain of, of other work and and amazing other people. And that is perhaps one of several reasons reasons that we are here today. However, uh, before we begin that, I want to say that the first interview that I did with Chris Habel's Grace, perhaps the most undervalued and underappreciated interviews that I have done ever on my podcast. And I have done 260 of those so far. This was seven and a half years ago. So I highly recommend you guys go and check out that interview because I think most of the gems that, that there's, you know, littering that interview are more relevant today than they were back in the day uh, seven and a half years ago. And I would even play you a clip that may actually shock many of you with its foresight and kind of foreseeing, if not outright predicting the current pandemic that we are living all in right now. So, but first of all, let me just say, that's a very long introduction to simply say, Chris Cable is great. Thank you very much for being with us today.
0: No, it's my pleasure. I enjoyed meeting you when I was in Toronto and enjoyed the last interview and I like your podcast. So it's great to be here.
1: Fantastic. Okay. So let us start our conversation with
0: this. Any species that overproduces like humans have, is almost always hit with major pandemics right to write the balance and humans are ripe for extreme uh, amount of suffering as in fact many of the smarter people in various governments know and we've seen actually more and more money going to preparing for for potential pandemic this is why we see health officials around the world always are quite upset or an avian flu so-called becomes uh, You know, there's a recent breakout now happening in the Far East. 20 people have died. A very fatal form of avian flu. But now it's only infectious from the chickens to the humans. If it becomes infectious between humans, we could see hundreds of millions of people die in a matter of months.
1: I think the coronavirus was, I was reading a couple of articles recently, was uh, very, there were some very dangerous developments with that recently. So, Chris, this is a clip seven and a half years ago, uh, dated May, 2013. What do you feel when you're looking at this today? How do you feel about it?
0: Well, I'm not surprised. Uh, I remember now I talked about it because even before then I've been writing about biological warfare and the danger of pandemics. So uh, it's sad to see the prediction has come half true. We're very lucky that COVID-19 is not nearly as fatal as it might've been. Actually, it seems only maybe millions of people will just die around the world, not hundreds of millions. So that's the good news.
1: Well, good news indeed. And, you know, I have entirely forgotten that moment uh, of our conversation, but I rewatch always my interviews before I redo any of them. And what's shocking me is not your amazing foresight, but that even I kind of narrowed it down even further by not talking about avian flu, but the coronavirus, which again, seven and a half years ago, I don't know what I was reading and how we stumbled into this, but there you go. It's called, uh, my motto is interview the future. So in that particular case, we got pretty close to it, uh, mostly thanks to you, of course. So, let me ask you this, it's been seven and a half years and it's been fires, protests, insane elections, polarization, climate change, global pandemic that we're all living through right now. How are you doing, first of all, personally? And second of all, how have has your thinking about the role of technology in all of this evolved or changed since our last conversation?
0: Well, personally, I'm doing okay. I'm a privileged older white man. I live with my son who's a winemaker. He goes out a lot, but we don't see uh, many other people besides the one he's people he sees and the people uh, my girlfriends in touch with. One of her sons works at Trader Joe's. I've known one person who's died, uh, a woman named Anna from Honduras. She was like in her early 50s. I went to her birthday party, her 50th birthday party. And I know a half dozen people who've had parents die and maybe a couple of dozen who've been sick. So it's not been horrible. When the fires were strong around California and we had to stay inside and the air was bad and we had to isolate. There were a few weeks there that were definitely felt like a crisis. But I'm actually moderately optimistic that by the middle of next year, this particular pandemic crisis will be past the worst of it. Not that we don't have many worse crises coming up. In some ways, the most horrible thing that's happened in the last uh, seven and a half, eight years is how the climate crisis has deepened. Uh, the news from Greenland and uh, the polls is very bad, uh, from the oceans, all it's all bad. And um, we've had a political shift with Trump being president and other authoritarians in power that slowed down the response to the climate crisis. So that actually will make this look like practice. This level of crisis we've had, tense as it is, is nothing compared to how it will be once the climate continues to deteriorate. And it's accelerating and deteriorating. So that concerns me. Mm
1: -hmm. So so where, where does technology fit into all of this? and how?
0: Well, technology is what makes it possible. Um, Going back to the technologies of controlling fire and inventing language, I'm often surprised by how my students, because like, for example, I'm teaching five courses this fall and several of them are on technology and ethics for UCSC or NYU students. And often students sort of think technology started when they were born. Anything that was around before they were born isn't really technology, it's just there. But then now there's new technologies coming up and they find those interesting. But you really have to n- notice that humans and technology are intimately linked. And it's technology that gives us our great power. It allows billions of us to live on this planet. But it also is why we're destroying this planet. Uh, COVID-19 is a direct result of our technological expansion in the wild nature, causing the zeno. You know, um, interactions between pigs and chickens and bats and other creatures and human immune systems. It was an inevitable uh, result of that, which is why we talked about it then, which is why that movie, uh, Contagion, is so on point, which is why Mike Davis's book about the coronaviruses, which has now been updated uh, for this crisis, is so excellent. So, Its technology is both uh, the root of all our problems and it's also our only hope for surviving into the future without a massive die-off of Homo sapiens sapiens.
1: Interesting. So, so how would you rank though, because you said that you're more, it sounded to me as if you're saying that you're more concerned about climate change because the pandemic is in a way like a rehearsal about the, the issues stemming from the worsening effects of climate change. So talk to us about the pandemic in comparison to climate change or in proportion to climate change and why you're kind of sort of, some might say, underplaying or undervaluing the pandemic and maybe others would argue overvaluing and overplaying the the climate?
0: Well, of course, this is uh, just the first, or it's not really the first, it's just um, the most noticeable of a wave of pandemics we've been experiencing for the last 30, 40 years caused by the expansion of humans in the wild zones, uh, Ebola, AIDS. These all come from the expansion of humans made possible by technology. What makes this pandemic a good rehearsal is because its contagion rate is very high, but its fatality rate is pretty low. We easily could have had a contagious virus that was 10, 100 times more fatal than this virus, which is probably only five to 20 times more fatal than the flu we could have had a virus you know the yearly influenza uh, that we suffer through we could have had a virus that was a thousand times more fatal than influenza and just as contagious as this which is more contagious than our yearly influenza about so it's not just a rehearsal for uh, the climate change problems but it's a rehearsal for our future pandemics but of course they're linked The climate change is caused by human expansion and the massive numbers of humans using our technology. And these kind of uh, viruses come out of that same expansion of humans into these zones where there's a reservoir of different organisms such that they can be transferred from wild creatures into, you know, farmed or even factory-bred creatures, pigs and so on, and into the human population. So they're all interlinked. And in some ways, we could say they're also linked with the third great um, threat to humanity, which is, of course, uh, weapons mass destruction, destruction, all-out war. As the climate change uh, crisis deepens and as pandemics continue to sweep through humanity, we will see more and more countries grow unstable. And it's often the recourse of leaders in unstable countries to push for military confrontation, which we've seen in the growing tension between China and the U.S., where we have uh, leaders in both those countries trying to become more authoritarian and also trying to keep a lid on a deeply unstable political economy. And so it's very threatening. So they're all linked together. And it all comes down to how humans are going to govern our technology. Will it be democratically, like I argue in my book, Cyborg Citizen, is necessary? Or will it be authoritarian governance of our technological crisis? And not just authoritarians in terms of political power, but authoritarians in terms of corporate power. There are no more dangerous authoritarians in the world right now than Zuckerberg of Facebook and Bezos of Amazon and the leaders of Google. They are authoritarians and they have tremendous power. And so that must be controlled. Uh, They cannot just pursue their profits and mine our very lives and our very existence for more and more profits. It's just super dangerous. As Shoshana Zuboff's wonderful book, Surveillance Capitalism, argues, I don't know if you've had a chance to read it, but it's deeply scary because she has gone and interviewed all these people in Google and stuff, and they um, admit that this is just the first step, mining the metadata, mining our lives for more and more profit. Eventually, they want to manipulate us. They want to control us, only for the very best reasons, to make us thinner, to help us uh, stay away from too much alcohol or drugs. Um, It would be very benign, they claim, that they will be able to use their algorithms not just to know what we might want to buy, but to help trick us into better behavior. But of course, they're just lying to themselves, probably, and to us, certainly. It's more like The Circle, a really excellent novel, and an okay movie until the end. The end of the movie betrays the novel because it's a happy ending. The novel is not a happy ending. I really recommend anyone who wants to understand the dangers of these kind of social media companies and why I consider them authoritarians should read both Shoshana Zuboff's book, um, as well, you know, Surveillance Capitalism, as well as the novel The Circle. Then you should be plenty scared and maybe we'll be able to do something about it.
1: Yeah, um, to be honest, I have asked Shoshana Zuboff three times probably for an interview so far. Unfortunately, uh, I haven't received a positive reply yet I'll keep trying though uh but what I will steal from you right here is that you are basically ranking the so-called what you call the the the, the most dangerous authoritarians to be the what peter Diamandis called calls the new uh what does he call them in his book um bo- uh, abundance he calls them the new techno philanthropists
0: actually uh <laughs> That's way too kind.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, so you call them the most dangerous autocrats, and and I have to say I side with you entirely, one hundred percent. And and I like that. So tell us a little more, perhaps. Why is it that someone like Putin is less dangerous? You know, a person who has access to weapons of mass destruction, who is in charge of, you know, at least the the third if not the second greatest military power in the world um, who is in charge of a nation of 150 million people, Uh, has a great, phenomenal access to both uh, natural and economic resources, uh, great geographical resources, and so on, and yet you rank him to be less dangerous than Mark Zuckerberg, than Sergey Brin, Larry Page, Jeff Bezos, why?
0: Because. Putin has much more limited ambitions. He wants to stay in power. Uh, There's good evidence that he might be the richest person in the world right now because of the incredible amounts of wealth he has captured from the uh, decommunization of, of the Soviet Union and from looting all the oligarchs who emerged from that. There's very few oligarchs left and most of that money went into Putin and his circle. But he's not interested even in expanding uh, Russia's borders beyond their traditional interest in Eastern Europe and access to the Indian Ocean through Iran. Of course, he's got an aggressive local sort of uh, focus with the Ukraine and Belarus and so on. But he doesn't have worldwide ambitions like China and the U.S. do. And he also uh, just wants to stay on top and keep his system going. And he's not developing new forms of insidious oppression. This is actually what makes the social media moguls particularly dangerous, more dangerous than Bill Gates, for example, who actually has become a sort of techno-philanthropist, but with his own liberal, moderate ideology behind it. But these people are not philanthropists at all. I mean, Zuckerberg may give money away, and the Google people, and Bezos puts most of his money into flying into space, which might not be the worst thing for him to do with his money, but they have a different perspective. Um, They are looking to the future to create more and more power, to to develop new forms of controlling society. Why Putin is using a playbook that's thousands of years old and he will die and he will not have a successor and Russia might go into chaos or it might go into a period of democracy or more authoritarianism. And all that's extremely dangerous. All these countries with nuclear power—extremely dangerous. The fundamentalist mullahs who run Iran, the authorities who run China, of course, America, especially when it's under uh, uh, somebody who suffers severely from mental illness like Trump, with malignant <laughs> narcissistic disorder. This is these are all extremely dangerous. I mean, to rank them is in a way a bit of a fool's errand because all of them could bring down this delicate sometimes beautiful, but often ugly edifice we call civilization. It could all go down. But I actually fear much more the social media people because they're on the move and because of what Shoshana Zuboff showed in her book in terms of their long-term goals and because it's so hard to get free of them. I've been trying to get free of Facebook for years. I have a couple of dozen friends who are seriously trying to find new ways to get free of Facebook and we really can't. There's nothing as good as Facebook for linking us both to our students, which I always feel an obligation to, and our many friends. I have friends from high school and college I would not be in touch with through Facebook, and I treasure my friendship. So they take the best parts of us, our hunger for knowledge that's useful, our connections to other humans, and they weaponize it against us, against our very freedom. So that's why I find it so dangerous.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, uh, so there is this debate actually on that point. Uh, on the one hand, you have Professor Zuboff, uh, who coined the term surveillance capitalism. On the other hand, you have Cory Doctorow, and who says that you know the big tech claims of what they can do are actually up for debate. If and and most probably are greatly overblown because they're. Uh, income basically depends on those claims, their income depends on their tools working. And since we don't have third party blind confirmation whether that's indeed the case or not, we are forced to take their claims for truthful. Uh, but you know, people who sell ads generally would tend to claim that their ads do work. Whereas we know historically speaking that that's not always been the case. And, you know, we don't have time to go into all the, the details here, but Corey has like a 30,000 word article on that topic where he says why he disagrees with Shushana Zubov so much on so many things in terms of uh, what actually is the problem. And so he says that big tech is a problem, but mostly as monopoly, at least at this point, Uh, And not so much uh, in terms of their ability to kind of brainwash and manipulate us, because those are, in his opinion, highly overrated and overstated and oversold uh, claims that have not been independently confirmed uh, and that serve those people to make more and more money if other people, their clients namely, believe that those claims are actually true, whether they're true or not. Uh, And so he says there's lots of reasons why we should be doubtful about those claims. So if Shoshana is interviewing people in Google and Facebook who says that they can do that, that's not necessarily good evidence that they actually can do that. That only says that they believe they're doing that for one reason or another, but it pays them to believe that they're doing it. Are you aware of this debate?
0: Well, I'm aware of the debate. I did not know Corey Doctower had a big article out uh, critiquing Zuboff. I look forward to reading that.
1: Yeah, yeah. It came on only a week or two ago, I, I think.
0: Okay, do you know where I could find it easily? I'll just search his name. And...
1: It's actually a short book, and it's free, uh, available online. It takes about two hours to read, I think. Uh, and it is uh, available on 10.medium.com. And it's called How to Destroy Surveillance Capitalism. Okay, uh, and and so anyone who is interested about this debate between Cory Doctorow and Shoshana Zuboff should go and check that out. But let us move on forward because here we're talking about the greatest dangers to uh, our civilization, uh, and you didn't even mention artificial intelligence. But there are people. Uh, so I'm not going to force you to to rank. You know, nuclear war and the autocrats of big tech and you know, climate change, I'm not gonna force you to rank among those, but interestingly, you didn't even mention artificial intelligence. And there are a number of people, most notably Elon Musk, but also Steve Wozniak, Bill Gates, even to a certain degree, the late uh, um, Dr. Stephen Hawking mentioned that artificial intelligence may be the greatest existential threat to humanity. Why didn't you include that in your list of threats to our civilization?
0: Well, I do think artificial stupidity is a threat. But artificial intelligence, in terms of actually having a hard AI, as it used to be called, or full consciousness, or any number of things, is still very distant. Zuboff's book shows how artificial stupidity, which they insist on calling artificial intelligence, has played a major role in degrading the freedom of the Internet. I argued uh, with my friend Angel Gordo in an article published a few years ago on social movements in the military and the state, why it was so true that uh, decentralized social movements did much better on the web than centralized groups. But this is before the social media companies managed to develop algorithms that could mine massive amounts of data and, in fact, have pacified the internet. So the internet is no longer the free space it was even 10, 15 years ago because they are so effective in taking masses of data and inserting their own uh, needs and desires into the whole process. So this is why they're dangerous because they draw on our own wishes and desires to manipulate us actually in the long run. And with all due respect to Doctro, we saw how just for By pursuing short-term profit, they've managed to seriously disrupt one election and probably were one of a number of of factors in the perfect storm that got Trump elected, how they proliferated uh, Russian and other misinformation throughout social media. But they also are doing it more and more to the extent that they have fostered a virulent right-wing subculture of armed militia people and q anon cultists and so on which only comes out of their short-term greed and the algorithms the stupid ai they've written to mine our behavior for their profit so uh, that is just what's happened in the last 10 years this is a curve that's going up their ability to more and more Um, understand and manipulate behavior in a massive way and then try to apply it to individuals is just increasing. And if you consider how this will intersect with developments in neuroscience that I've been monitoring for a couple of decades, like optogenetics, the ability to um, manipulate people's brains directly to target one particular neuron in your brain uh, and change how it operates using light or sound, Um, maybe even magnetic um, transcranial uh, interfaces. This is just really dangerous. So uh, when people say AI, um, I do think it's what often is meant by AI can be very dangerous. But it's really artificial stupidity. It's not the consciousness AI that we've been taught to fear by great science fiction, going back to Colossus, the Forbin Project and uh, um, Terminator and all these stories. There's dozens of them where Supercomputers usually set up for military reasons, become conscious and take over. There's actually a new show on TV next, which is uh, the same theme, right? Well, that I don't worry about. And when I hear people are afraid of AI as a threat to humanity, that's what I think they mean. and then that does not scare me because we are not about to experience the singularity and have conscious AI threaten us. But what we are seeing is humans mobilizing, these stupid AIs to do more and more uh, mischief in our cultures just for their short-term profit and their power. Facebook particularly scares me because I'm convinced Zuckerberg is extremely right-wing and authoritarian. He did not hire, as one of his vice presidents, one of the men who led the 2000 riots that disrupted the vote counting in Florida that led to George Bush being declared president over the real winner, Al Gore. He did not hire that person, um, whose name escaped me, though I just put it in an article, um, just because he was the best person for that job. He hired that person to make links with the current administration in the White House. And he has said, people have quoted him as saying he considers that the Republicans, and especially Trump-type Republicans, are better for Facebook and him than Democrats who might want to regulate Facebook and will regulate it and break it up as a monopoly. So it's it's getting scary because of people like Zuckerberg having such extraordinary power. Uh, but the fact that the Democrats will probably win, there might be some bloodshed, but it's looking pretty good that uh, Trump will go down. He's alienated so many constituencies he needs. Um, and then we will see an attempt to break the monopolies of the social media moguls and other super rich people, the fact that the only group that's really benefited from the pandemic to the tune of trillions, trillions, trillions of dollars is the super rich, which most people cannot, um, cannot get past once they learn that. I think there's some hope we'll be able to turn this around politically, but It's all a crapshoot. It's been uh, one long roller coaster ride as long as I can remember with how fast the world's changing. And it's only changing more quickly. And I don't think a lot of observers of the world take into account just how quickly it's changing with new technologies and new discoveries in science coming online every minute. I'm sure seven and a half years ago I said there are more scientists and engineers alive right now and doing research than in all the rest of history. Well, that's true now there are more scientists and engineers with better tech than ever making new discoveries and sadly our political infrastructure our moral um, values have not improved nearly at the pace that our ability to manipulate and destroy the world has improved and that remains the main problem this race between uh, the growing but slowly growing (laughs) maturity of the human race versus our extremely quickly expanding ability to manipulate the physical world.
1: Yeah, I have to agree with you uh, mostly, at least on, on both accounts actually. So first, I forget the name of the poet who said it, but it was basically a poet said that human nature has not much evolved for the past 10,000 years or has evolved for the past 10,000 years as much as the beaks of eagles, which is to say not very much at all. <laughs> and and with respect to ai or artificial general intelligence agi i also agree with you that it doesn't seem to be getting closer by you know a huge factor of time in fact i was uh, recently rereading vernard vinge's sort of seminal 1992 paper about the technological singularity that he gave to uh, at nasa And his timeline is kind of ending. He he wrote that in 1992, and he was talking about how in 30 years, the human era would have ended. So basically, we have basically at most a couple of years, let's say two or three years for his kind of prediction to come through. And I don't see it happening, to be honest, within the next two or three years at all. I don't see it even within the next decade, let alone within the next two or three years.
0: Well, they say in philosophy that consciousness is the hard problem. And to think that it would spontaneously emerge uh, just from agglomerating more and more computer power together was sort of naive i mean it was possible because of uh, what we know about uh, phase changing and complex systems emergent systems and so on but it was just a crapshoot that it might or might not happen and it turns out it's not happening but that doesn't mean that uh, these systems haven't gotten much more powerful but notice what Verna Vinge said, which is so often ignored. He said either it'll be this autonomous AI or it will be human machine systems integrated together, right. cyborg-type systems. And that we are seeing right. uh, is happening, whether it's intimate, actual, by the pure definition, cyborg systems, or whether it's more cyborg society-type systems like Facebook, like TikTok, which become integral to people's lives. That has become incredibly powerful. And the people who control those levers, like... Uh, zuckerberg and facebook then they have all the more power because they control an important part of our lives you know who we meet on facebook who we befriend there where we spend so much of our time so verna you know was insightful about that when i first met you back there in toronto there was that conference and marvin minsky spoke and he said that he realized now that in fact the hard ai general consciousness was not going to be solved Soon And certainly not by his approach, which was the hyper-masculine Western, I think, therefore, I think I can think like a computer and teach it that. That's been an abject failure. Slower approaches, like Rodney Brooks, fast, cheap, and out of control when he doesn't try to, like, you know, jump ahead of the line, those promise that maybe in a long time, Uh, that might be emerging from uh, autonomous systems that actually exist physically, robots and so on, a type of intelligence similar to humans, but I think it's a long way off. But in the short term, this intimate interweaving of humans and machining systems, that's what we're seeing. That's why we put together the book Modified, which is a bunch of people writing about how they are cyborgs, how they see themselves as cyborgs, showing that this is not something that's coming it's something that's here, and now we can start looking at how it's actually working out, being cyborged in all our different ways.
1: Well, that's the perfect segue for us to talk uh, about the book, but I do want to touch on a couple of other things, and, and just one last question on this topic. You say that you don't see that AI singularity, the Kurtzwellian AI singularity happening anytime soon. Uh, what? What does that mean in terms of time? Like, is it five years, 10 years, 50 years, 100 years? Uh, Because personally, I have to say with you that my, I have to agree with you that my own thinking on the topic after basically working on this for 15 years and doing 260 interviews with many, many experts has evolved sort of along those lines. I am a lot more skeptical now as per the timeline than I was 10 years ago or 15 years ago. Uh, at the same time, I haven't seen any evidence that it's impossible in principle. Uh, so I still believe it's possible. I still believe it can, and probably at some point, if we don't destroy ourselves as a civilization before that, it probably will happen at some point. I don't think we're going to see that within this decade. Uh, how about you? Where Whereabouts do you see that?
0: I think I'm very similar to where you are now, but I've been here for maybe 20 years. I felt that uh, as long as civilization didn't collapse, looking at the trajectory of human technoscience development and understanding that life can um, develop in many different ways. There's a lot of really exciting research on different ways life could develop. And that in fact, intelligence like life, I do believe comes naturally. It evolves out of the whole process that includes the evolution of stars and the evolution of solar systems. Why this is, uh, I've not yet uh, been convinced that we know, but there's some great theories on why complex systems emerge out of simpler systems. Science is noticing this. So I do think that that's how um, things work. In our reality, where we're stuck in one particular arrow of time, although the physicists still can't explain why that is. So we will see if humanity doesn't, totally mess things up. We will see um, machinic autonomous intelligence. It may include a lot of biological elements. It could well happen once humans get out into space more if we manage to do that. And these uh, systems with uh, some biological, but many machinic parts are just purely machines are operating on their own a great deal of the time or, or maybe intimately with some humans. So I would think 30 to 100 years, we might see certain kinds of true intelligence developing. And it might be quite different than human intelligence, but I do believe it will have to be embodied. This is one of the big mistakes made by the early AI people from Alan Turing to Minsky and Kurtzwell, just thinking in such a Western rationalistic way and masculinist way that, oh, this is what consciousness is, is all this thinking. When, of course, if you pay any attention to real science, consciousness is all about emotions and not just your neural tissue in your brain, but the other half of it that's in your body and all sorts of other things is what makes human intelligence work and animal intelligences, which, of course, we're on a continuum with cats and dogs and crows and eagles and whatever. Um, then you see it has to be embodied. And once we see more and more systems, especially with they're free of constant human interventions, we might get there. But I agree with your timeline. 20, 30 years at the earliest, maybe 100 years, 200 years at the outside. Um, But I do not see them as then being inherently evil or all-powerful. They would be much more likely to be competing and much more limited. They might actually be more like very smart pets. They might really, um, and some science fiction has looked at this, see us more as gods. That would be a big mistake. But we wouldn't be any worse than the Greek gods who were just as... (laughs) full of foibles as humans are. So I, I agree with you. It's going to be longer than Kutzwell and Luna thought it might be. And the transhumanists, now calling themselves post-humanists more and more, think it's going to be. But it it should happen. It seems a natural process if we don't mess up.
1: Right, and, and the Greek gods are, of course, a reflection or a mirror image of the Greeks of, that, of their day, which is why they're so full of foible, or also very human, of course. Uh, and that's my greatest concern about AI today, is because look at us, we are so full of problems. We are, uh, as you said, we have increased our power tremendously, but our wisdom has not kept up with it. Uh, and the resolve is at least very destructive and perhaps possibly suicidally self-destructive. Um, so take that to a whole other level with the AIs or AGIs and then that that kind of worries me a lot, to be honest with you. And that's one development that I notice in my own thinking very clearly since our last conversation seven and a half years ago where I was a lot more apologetic about the whole singularitarian movement, the transhumanist movement, a lot more like sort of waving the flag, uh, whereas you were a lot more cautious than me, a a lot wiser in in so many ways. Um, And by the the way, at that time you said that you are intellectually uh, pessimistic but emotionally optimistic or naturally optimistic. Whereabouts do you stay these days with all the present challenges that we're all facing. Are you still at that same kind of status?
0: Well, first I'd say that uh, if people start trying to develop uh, artificial intelligence in biological bodies copied off ours, I would be scared shitless because we do not need more intelligence that's uh, driven and warped by estrogen and testosterone and adrenaline and serotonin. These these are things that make humanity uh, unstable. We may get a grip on them. We may become more logical and calm and balanced in our view of the world. But right now, being these biological, evolved biological systems, it's very, very dangerous. Um, Pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will is something the great um, Italian communist Antonio Gramsci said all revolutionaries need. And I'm lucky because I am naturally optimistic. Irrationally so, I've discovered at times, looking back at mistakes I've made. Um, but yet, intellectually, I am very pessimistic. I'm very skeptical. And maybe it's just my personal arrogance. There we go with uh, testosterone and estrogen again. But when I hear something, the first thing I think is, well, is that true? How could that be wrong, right? No. And the more powerful the authority that's saying it, the more likely I am to uh, start deconstructing it, to be skeptical of it. And uh, my parents used to complain about this bitterly. But that's just the way I, I am, uh, cognitively, and yet emotionally, I'm very optimistic. Oh, the world could be better, most people are good, and so on, and I do believe most people are good, but I don't believe most people with power are good. And that way I have changed in the last 50 years and become uh, more cynical about how hard the work will be to make a better world. Most people are really good people, they're friendly. Um, even if they act racist and on some level they're racist, once they meet people, many of the people can transcend that, not all people clearly. But the more powerful people get, the less likely they are to have these good qualities. Power corrupts. And power reveals, perhaps. It reveals, perhaps. Well, the people who choose to go into these um, areas who really seek power over others, um, like clearly Zuckerberg has, really wanted just to get more and more powerful. He doesn't even know why, I am sure. He has no sense of why.
1: You know, it's funny because all those people like Zuckerberg and and, uh, many other of the social media sort of startup founders or geniuses, as they were called at some point or another, (laughs) they are actually, you know, nerds. So take Zuckerberg. He basically couldn't get laid in college. So he started the Facebook where they were ranking women on their looks, on their profile pictures. That's how Facebook started. It was a sexist, A website ranking system among a bunch of college freshmen who couldn't get laid, basically, and who were ranking in the most sort of misogynistic, uh, unfulfilled, if you will, way (laughs) that a college freshman could do about dreaming about something that they couldn't possibly attain, Mm -hmm. and yet somehow the context technologically, politically, and sociologically allowed for this kind of, and of course, they're they're not very socialized, they're emotionally insecure, maybe unstable, uh, they have all kinds of uh, socialization issues, There's, they have all kinds of issues with empathy and compassion, um, they have so many issues at so many levels, and yet the context politically, sociologically, technologically allowed that to turn into a massive strength, which brought them to these enormous enormous positions of power, which in turn to be used po- properly require all those things that they lacked to begin with. And that process of taking them there only hardened those positions, as you said, kind of made it worse or, as I say, revealed that original lack of empathy, awareness, socialization. So... It shouldn't be surprising that they are asocial, misogynistic, sexist, racist, sort of black and white, simplistic, and and serving and uh, harnessing our worst drives that we have as as humans.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that's very true, and it's both a combination of their incredible will to power, which we see too in Gates. And Microsoft's earlier attempts to take over the internet and and how much they stole and how much they tried to just dominate. And even Apple with their own little world. Although um, Wozniak's a very sweet man from all accounts. He's friends of friends of mine. He had the same midwife as uh, I did um, for my boys. But uh, still, just allowed, because he wasn't involved, I don't think, in deciding this, Apple to become a world on its own and just keep pushing and pushing the way they treat their vendors and many of their workers but not all is just horrible and so it's really you're right this is revealed in these people and this is why they succeed the guy who was a genius is a genius who came up with the coding for the whole web for html he gave it to the world tim berners-lee yes a great great person but also an emotionally stable modest person but people like Zuckerberg and the Google guys, they take whatever they create, and none of it is genius. None of these people are geniuses. I haven't seen any. The only genius I've ever seen um, that I would say from these people is Jobs' aesthetic sense. Apple machines are beautiful, even when yeah. they don't really work. So I consider Jobs a great artist. Some of these people were excellent coders, very innovative, like Wozniak was really the coding power in that team. And But others were not. There's no evidence Zuckerberg, like you said, was any any great coder. He just caught the right wave at the right time, especially with limiting Facebook to the elites at Harvard and then Stanford. That gave it the uh, energy so it could win at the tipping point and replace MySpace, which was more interested in hooking up bands with uh, their fans and stuff, and other potential competitors to Facebook. They didn't lose out because Facebook was better, they lost out because as you said, Zuckerberg was crazier and he was luckier. So being um, mentally ill in a sense or certainly emotionally stunted helps in our neo-capitalist system. And then luck is involved, a great deal of luck. If you just hit the wave at the right time, find the right venture capitalist and so on. But all of these people, and personally, even Gates when he was um, younger, I had friends who worked at Microsoft and he treated people horribly, horribly. At the campus there in Washington, people would go blocks out of their way to avoid him coming out and yelling at them. So what kind of a person is this? I mean, only uh, in a super hierarchical neo-capitalist system can people get away with such behavior. Or in a fancy restaurant where cooks are the same, I guess. I don't know. But yeah, quite right. Their flaws have been revealed. And they are so much like Trump. This, This hunger, this hunger that doesn't go away. And it won't go away till they die which at its heart is deep fear, fear of death, and fear that they aren't who they think they are. But yes, that hunger might consume us all, what frightens me about them.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, uh, I think it was Cory Doctorow who was saying that Google basically has a one and a half kind of innovation, uh, sort of, uh, and that was the one comes from their search engine, which was basically the innovation was the page rank, that's the only innovation. And then the half point comes from the Gmail, which is basically a clone, a better clone of Hotmail. And then everything else thereafter that Google has and has done is basically they bought out. They bought out somebody else's idea. They just had the cash. They had the dough to buy it out. They didn't innovate it. Uh, so, so I agree with you that, uh, Apple has innovated a lot more than than most, if not all of that, and Facebook has innovated nothing. Uh, they just did a better MySpace. And, and it's interesting because MySpace, as you pointed out, uh, or LinkedIn, which was also preceding Facebook, LinkedIn was like professionally oriented. MySpace was about music and connecting music groups with uh, or bands with, with their fans. Uh, Facebook was kind of misogynistic, male chauvinist, like about ranking women portraits and pictures and stuff to date them, hopefully, eventually. And yet somehow that thing became the dominant player due to luck and, and, and maybe uh, the worst angels of our nature, uh, if I'm to paraphrase that uh, line. So... And I wonder what it, what it says about who we are, where we're coming from and, and are we surprised where we end up going in the end?
0: Well, that's a good point. It does seem uh, that some of these great social media empires draw on our worst impulses and Facebook is the classic example. Um, and that's scary, but here we are. We have to hope that we can uh, grow mature enough to resist the temptation of, uh, just hunting for likes and, uh, spreading our worst fears and uh, fooling ourselves about this or that conspiracy. Not that some conspiracies aren't real, but most of those are right in our face. It's these hidden conspiracies that are least likely to actually exist.
1: So so let's talk now about uh, your latest book that you just edited, uh, because I think it perhaps has a lot to do with our current context, and it has a lot to teach us um, about sort of like who we are, where we're coming from, and perhaps maybe even where we're going. So first of all, uh, the book is called Modified Living as a Cyborg. And as I said, I have a tiny little contribution to it. But why don't you tell us, because I know you've been working very hard for maybe two, maybe three years to make this book happen. Uh, Why this book? And why now? How did you come up with the idea? And why did you think it was Something useful to do with your precious time.
0: Oh, that's a good question. Well, the book came out of discussions I was having with Routledge when I was contacted by them that the South Korean publishing firm wanted to translate *Cyborg Citizen*. And so then I go, okay, well that's wonderful. I'm very gratified by that. It's now in German and in Korean and I think some other language. I can't remember right offhand. But I then wrote them and said, well, how about a follow-up to the Cyborg Handbook? Like uh, Bride of Cyborg Handbook is what I wanted to call it, right? Because um, the Cyborg Handbook did make a big uh, impact on how people thought about our cyborgization, which was just becoming really obvious at that point. And it was a collection of some original articles, but many old you know, reprints. Well, then thinking about it, and in discussions with Routledge, and because of how publishing works now, it's hard to make a profit off reprinting stuff, especially since much of it's available online. We finally let go of copying the Sidebook Handbook, and with my editors, Heidi Figueroa Sarriera from the Universidad de Puerto Rico, and Stephen Mentor, um, who teaches at Evergreen College, uh, my best friend, we came up with this idea of getting people to write first-person accounts of what it's like to be a cyborg for several reasons. One is because it's much easier for people to read and understand cyborgization if you have a lot of people writing in accessible little essays, this is how I'm a cyborg (coughs) or whatever turns out that some of these people are well-known cyborgologists and many academics, although we have people who aren't academics in it. Some of them can't really free themselves of writing academically. But others, like Amber Case, uh, they did a great job writing personally about what it means to be a cyborg. And then a lot of people who aren't academics, they often wrote uh, some of the more engaging articles. Like we had two women, a woman from Norway and a woman from Canada, who have um, heart implants. And have been involved in trying to gain control of those heart implants to get um, access to the security codes and so on. Uh, um, Marie Mo in Canada, I think that's her name. Um, she actually played a major role in getting Canadian law changed so people with medical implants can have access to the coding. And so they have much many more consumer rights for the machine that's actually in their chest. Both these women found out independently that their heart implants could be hacked and they could be killed remotely and they were not happy about this so they have a wonderful interview when they're talking together about this and that was the idea yeah. of, and that episode.
1: article by the way just for clarity is called don't mess with my heart device i'll do it myself
0: yeah <laughs> these are amazing amazing women and there's other people too writing about um, their actual experience of being cyborgs or of working with cyborgs a doctor uh, she's a sociologist or a doctor of sociology in in Scotland that actually works on studying the impact of people who get heart transplants, right, which is a cyborg process. Then a number of the most important cyborg artists, we're honored that Stellark is in this book and Moon Ribas is in this book and Lisette Olivares, these are all cyborg performance artists and they all contribute because they're very important in how they think about cyborgization and as i argued in cyborg citizen they're extremely important because they take control of the cyborgization process for themselves based on their own criteria and they do not have cyborgization imposed on them they choose how to modify themselves uh stellark in particular is a real hero of mine and a charming charming guy i don't know if you've gotten to interview him on your show but yes just a a wonderful man uh, and his article is brilliant. In fact, I like to think all the articles are quite quite good. So we have all these different people from Donna Haraway to uh, Stella to people you've never heard of writing about what it means to be a cyborg and it should be really accessible. And I think it will start showing people that the question is not, are you a cyborg or not? Because we are all, most all cyborgs technically if we're vaccinated and because we live in cyborg society anyway the question is how are you a cyborg and how much control do you have over the this process this reality and what you're going to do about it and that's why i think you know hopefully we'll speak to a lot of people who will find it much more accessible than the cyborg handbook which was really aimed at academics more than uh, real people
1: yeah and i have to say it it takes some ideas at least from Uh, your previous book that we discussed here, which is called uh, Cyborg Citizen, which I have to say is one of the few books that I have kept in my own library, because to be honest, some time ago, I probably got rid of two thirds of my books and I've went digital more or less. And I've only kept, you know, one wall of books for my own sort of pleasure. And this book, I don't see myself parting with because it's really so profound. And it was published in 2001, but I think 20 years later, it's more useful today perhaps than it was back then to kind of figure out the present moment, if you will, which you in a way saw there in 2001. And so therefore, I'm not surprised that they want to, or they have hopefully already translated it in Korean because it's totally worth it. And just one of the ideas that you're talking about right now that comes from this book, I believe, is is the fact that you say here that it's not whether we're going to have technologies in the future or not, but what technology, who chooses, for what purpose, uh, and uh, um, and those are the real questions. And uh, who has the power to change the direction of these technologies under what conditions, and so on. Uh, and so this is basically uh, kind of perhaps the ideological or, 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 or the, the seed, the, the intellectual seed that I see from this book into your latest book?
0: So first, I'm very uh, honored that you find the book so useful even now. And you're quite right that Cyborg Citizen takes my understanding of cyborgs and technology that goes back to when I was an undergraduate at Stanford and started studying these things seriously. And it combines it with my politics, which are feminist and anarchist. So it's all about spreading democracy with a small D um, to more and more parts of our lives. It's just idiocy to think that since we have some generally, vaguely somewhat democratic processes on the meta, uh, mega political level, like we can vote and give money to candidates and maybe even run for office, which is more powerful on the local level than for any of us on the national level, that that somehow represents democracy. When in fact, in our work lives and how the environment's treated and um, in our own cyberization, we have very little power. So how is that democracy? We need democracy in all our lives. And especially because the elites, as we were talking about earlier, are often self-selected out of their psychopathology. Um, And in all ways, we know that uh, kinds of decisions that come out of individuals and hierarchies are not as good as those that come out of collective processes, if they are fundamentally sound processes. It's just too dangerous. It's too dangerous to have hierarchical political systems. It's too dangerous, even more so, to have authoritarians at the top of those systems. So yes, uh, we need strong ideas of citizenship to be able to even dream about having a real future because our powers are so great. We need to have a political system that's democratic and sophisticated enough to harness them. So in work, in cyberization, and how we treat nature, the decisions that are made around the externalities of pollution and how profits generated from destroying the living world, this all has to change or we're just not going to make it.
1: Yeah, and and big part of that is that we also have to change to be better citizens. Uh, that was your parting message last time. Uh, which is kind of very illuminating in many ways, perhaps at the present moment, or is it? Uh, Let me give the quote first uh, from last time and ask you if that says a lot about where we are today with not only Trump, but also Bolsonaro, uh, the Philippines, uh, Duarte, and uh, Poland, Hungary, so many other places around the world. And so last time you said, quote, We need good citizenship, strong citizenship like Socrates had when he went and risked his life to fight for Athens. We can't be just people who vote. We must be really engaged citizens like our hero Socrates and risk all, risk our lives to make the world better for our children and our friends. So given the present moment, have we shown ourselves to be not worthy or not good citizenship, not good stewards of nature, not good stewards of democracy, not smart enough, sophisticated enough, educated enough, engaged enough, to care enough, to make a difference, to put people who could make that difference uh, and, and help us thrive rather than diminish us and the world around us. Uh, and kind of polarizes. What does it say about who we are?
0: Well, the verdict's not in because I do see incredible progress through time, and then very quickly if you take a long historical view. And um, the world—it's you can't admit that you think women are inferior, that children should be worked to death, that people should be enslaved. Many people still believe this, but at least the standards have changed remarkably. And we've actually seen um, poverty rates have gone down. More and more countries, more and more people have a say in what things happen. More and more places are trying to educate girls. So we've seen women come to power in uh, situations where, for example, in Iceland at one point, all three of the major branches of government were led by women. And this was unprecedented in, in, in historical times, that kind of power. So the change is happening. It's just not happening as quickly as uh, our powers to manipulate the physical world are happening. And yes, we're going through an authoritarian stage. It's not quite as bad as the 1930s yet. And I don't think it'll get as bad as the 1930s. But this is the ebb and flow. It's often two steps forward, one step back. And with Trump and these other authoritarians being elected, uh, Boris Johnson and uh, or, as they call him in the UK, and so on and so forth. But what will it lead to next? Um, if Biden wins, as all indications are, we will have the most liberal um, government in the United States history. And this is because of Trump. And why did we have Trump? Well, Trump was a reaction to Obama electing the first African-American president. Now, sadly, Obama was not in any sense an activist. He wasn't even that progressive. He was really a very mainstream, moderate Democrat, which is why um, he bailed out the banks and not the people who owed money to the banks, because apparently the moral hazard, the moral hazard of being uh, forgiven your loans is something that can degrade working people in America, but somehow bankers are immune to it, maybe because they're already corrupted. For whatever reason, Obama laid the groundwork for Trump, not just by stimulating the racist attitudes of the um, certain segment of the white working class, which certainly came out in force, but they're just trying to return to a past that never really existed and restore their white privilege. But also by messing over uh, all these working people who saw the banks that made loans to them for their houses, often fraudulently get bailed out by they themselves um, had their lives destroyed. And Obama did this because he just believed a bunch of lies about how uh neo-capitalist political economies work. He just believed in all sorts of uh what some economists call vampire logic, vampire claims in economics, trickle down, moral has I hazard.
1: blame Larry Summers.
0: Pardon? I
1: blame oh, Larry like, Summers.
0: Well Summers and all the people from uh, Goldman Sachs he brought into the government, but he brought them in. Yeah. He was just the mainstream moderate Democrat who just yes. happened to be very charming. And uh, an African American. I was telling my um, girlfriend last night that I would not want Obama to have power, although he might make a good Supreme Court justice, but he would be a great neighbor. Him and Michelle seem like really nice people. They're good dancers, they like good food, they're great conversationalists. So I would love to be friends with the Obamas. But as a president, I wish we would have had a more radical person. But maybe it was impossible at the moment when he was elected and when he came. But under the the Biden administration will be, I think, the most progressive administration in American history because they you cannot blow off the left. And Harris, Harris is tough. I mean, she's pretty um, mainstream in some of her views, but she moves and she's not going to be pushed around like Obama was and like, I'm afraid Biden will be and try to be civil with the other ruling class elite people. I'm hoping Harris will show um, some real steel and along with the people who are supporting her, like Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and a lot of the younger, uh, more radical uh, people, like, what do they call it, the crew, AOC, who's an amazingly brilliant person. Just read how she thinks. So there's hope. Oh, that
1: that's, that's very good. Uh, because, you know, I talked to a lot of people lately, very smart people who are very disappointed from democracy, Uh, precisely because we have seen Brexit, we have seen Boris Johnson, we have seen Nigel Farage, we have seen Trump, we have seen Duarte, Bolsonaro, many, many others. And uh, even one very smart guy who is a fan of my podcast I was talking to, uh, he's a professor at a university in Belgium um, in sort of uh, nanotechnology. Uh, He was telling me, you know, uh, people really need like a driver's license in order to vote. Like you need a political license in order to vote where you have to have at least the basic understanding of what a democracy is, of how the system works, a little bit of the history or something like. And if you don't meet the most basic criteria, maybe you shouldn't vote according to him. Uh, and and he's basically kind of uh, espousing to me this kind of neo-Platonic. Uh, you know, Socratic in some ways, but maybe that wasn't the real Socrates. Maybe that was Plato more than the real Socrates when he was writing those particular diagrams. Oh yeah.
0: that was not Socrates, no. Right. The, the whole um, philosopher king, but I don't know if your friend is really saying philosopher king, when someone becomes a naturalized citizen in the United States, they have to take a test on how the constitution works. <coughs> Same and in so, Canada. Yeah, so I don't know if it would be totally out of place to say voters should at least have a working knowledge of the Constitution and things like that. I'm not sure if that's the main issue, though, getting more people to vote. In the United States, a vast majority of people, even the stupid voters, believe in universal health care. They believe in uh, a woman's right to her body. But um, because of repressing the vote and and the way the system works and the the deeply undemocratic aspects of the electoral college, we end up with uh, governments that are way to the right of where most people stand. So, but uh, to go back to how you started that question, you know, Brexit seems bad on the face of it, but out of Brexit might come an independent Scotland and a united Ireland. So yes, uh, England's going to suffer some, (coughs) especially on my left wing friends in England who really don't want Scottish independence. But Uh, The um, Tories have shown themselves as equally incompetent as Trump, if less obviously insane. And that's just going to lead to a a response and maybe uh, a progressive and effective uh, labor government or some other kind of coalition will come to power. You never know. But uh, but I would have predicted that Trump would lead to a real left-wing turn, and I did predict it, even when he came to power, and that's what's happened. And we were very lucky with Trump because he happens to be both stupid and insane. If we had someone um, just mildly crazy like Nixon and very intelligent, uh, we would be in a much worse place. The thing that makes the current situation so bad is the Republicans have become deeply corrupted. Back when Nixon was president, there were actually Republicans who believed in the Constitution and stuff. Most of them have been purged from the party and they're now the fellow travelers for Trump. But Trump himself is a horrible leader. I mean, looking at it from a right-wing racist point of view, he's just an idiot. He's alienated all the people he would need to have an effective coup. Now he's only got the, the rump of the Republican Party and it seems unlikely they would be able to keep power for him, although they will try him and the militia and the Republican legislatures and judges in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Michigan, where there are some extremely dishonorable, corrupt Republican office holders. But basically, they're deep in deep, deep trouble. And it seems though there might be some disturbances around the election and vote counting, some deaths seem inevitable. Um, They will come out with Biden as president and the whole country sickened by Trump. The latest polls have Trump down almost um, 20 points right? And he will lose probably in a landslide as big as Reagan's landslide. But going the other way, the Reagan uh, landslide was uh, in Nixon's government, but then under Reagan especially, was when we started to see working people and middle-class people losing their share of the economy and the rich getting more and more. Reagan cut the taxes on rich by two-thirds. So hopefully we'll see a, a turnaround. And that's what we have to hope for, two steps forward, one step back. And now we're at a two-step forward moment if uh, things go well in the next three weeks. And we have to seize that opportunity to try to take us to the next level where a just and sustainable world is even more possible uh, instead of less possible, which has sort of been how the last but few years But
1: let me take are. some issue here with you. And, and while acknowledging both your kind of in-depth, better knowledge about the United States uh, and also kind of your general wisdom far superseding mine. But, you know, here's three three areas where I don't agree with you. So first of all, uh, you know, my mother-in-law is American, and most of the family on that side, uh, you know, they're from Rochester, New York. Most of them voted uh, for Trump, including my mother-in-law. And just like two days ago, we had the Canadian Thanksgiving and uh, you know I am not one to control my mouth very well, and needless to say, it didn't contribute to a very good Thanksgiving. It was kind of a big argument, and we love each other dearly with my mother-in-law, but on that point, it's like
0: she's uh, still hanging with Trump, huh? Uh,
1: so not not only her, everyone in the family that I know of in in there is hanging out with Trump. So despite whatever the polls say, and I'm aware of them, I mean, last time I checked, there was a 16-point difference. Now you're saying 20-point. That may or may not be true. But number one is I'm not writing out Trump until I see a factual difference. Number two is I'm also not willing to give Joe Biden as much credit as you seem to be giving uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, So first of all, I think Joe Biden stands from my point of view, as a representative of everything that's wrong with the kind of the old classic system of governance of the United States. He's been in it for, I don't know, 40 years or something. No, Forever, no, no. it's no. longer, right? Yeah. For 50 years, over 50 years, right? He's like 70, 78 or something. Oh my God, he's ancient. So he's been there for half a century. So for me, he represents everything worse about the system that people both on the left and on the right are recoiling from so if he were to come to power basically he'll be better than Trump but he will be same old same old business as usual I don't see him as a radical uh, uh, change maker and I hope totally I am wrong about that So, but that's my perception, and and it is to be shown uh, in the future whether he would win and what difference would it make when he wins, because many people are talking in the same colors about uh, Obama, and we see after eight years, there was no change. Um, And then finally, my concern is that you're talking about the shifting of the pendulum, you know, left and right and how it's swinging further and further to the ends well, what about the next swing? Because you kind of predicted that we would have a swing to the left because of Trump, and maybe others predicted that there will be a swing to the right because of Obama. Well, what about the next Trump, after uh, the next person after Biden? Wouldn't it be another swing all the way to the right, even further than Trump, for example, right? That's what concerns me here. And I just, I'm honestly quite sure not certain, despite all your optimism, much of which I accept with and much of which I want to accept, I'm not sure if the populace is educated enough and 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 uh, capable of not preventing that from happening in the future, the next swing to the right after Biden administration, possible Biden administration. So what about these three ideas? Well,
0: here? the first one is, uh, I think a lot of people who don't know the U.S. really well, don't realize how inelastic a lot of the U.S. politics are. In Europe and in Canada, you often see big shifts in votes. This is much less uh, common in the United States. People are sort of locked into their point of view. Probably 80% of the population is very locked into their point of view. 40% being very reactionary and, and in many cases racist. Racism underlies Trump's appeal to a massive degree. But of course, the demographics of that are in the long term disastrous because America is becoming a majority non-white country. So if you build your political power off racism and especially off racist white whites who don't go to college um, and who aren't women, well, you have a really <laughs> limited area of, uh, of growth. You cannot grow. I mean, the Trump's kind of politics are doomed. Not that the future might lead in a swing back to a much more dangerous kind of authoritarianism, an efficient authoritarianism that hides its racism better. I think of China, although China's getting less and less uh, good about hiding its racism. Uh, They just ordered a museum in uh, France that was having a show about uh, the Mongols and Genghis Khan, not to use the term, the word Genghis Khan. Um, Even you can't talk about the Mongol empire, without saying Genghis Khan, but the Chinese government is trying to repress Mongol independence, which is pretty hard because Mongolia is an independent country, but there's Mongols in China, just as they're repressing the Uyghurs, just as they're trying to destroy Tibetan culture. Um, they're trying to destroy all non-mainstream Han Chinese culture, it's very racist. But on the other hand, the government's incredibly efficient. Look at how they've controlled the virus using all their authoritarian infrastructure they put in place. They get back to your mother-in-law, course she lives in a state that will never vote for someone like trump and all the um dynamic parts of the american economy and culture are very left wing uh texas will soon become a blue state so california texas the whole east coast what does the right wing have left that your mother-in-law thinks she still supports trump well we'll see how many of those trumpers go to the polls but when you really get into the weeds uh for example um how people think about this election. It isn't just that Biden has two or three times the lead Hillary Clinton had at this point. He has an 18 plus positivity rating. When Trump ran against Hillary, they were both seen negatively and Hillary was seen as even more negative terms than Trump. Trump remains, I think 11 points underwater in terms of likability, but Biden is 18 points above um, the 50% mark in terms of likability, while Hillary was below even Trump. And we see that with white women now, Trump leads with all white women. I mean, uh, Biden leads with all white women. Uh, Biden is 50-50 in whites in general because Biden leads so much with college-educated whites. So basically, the Trump style of authoritarianism is on its last legs. Um, That kind of simplistic racism, um, which easily descends into idiocy with not mask wearing Now, support for mask wearing is over 80% in the United States, and Trump is committing more and more to being the candidate of the people who won't wear masks, even half of his supporters believe in wearing masks, and they might vote for him, or they might just stay home out of um, discouragement, but really, he's at a dead end, and he cannot even mobilize the support of the people he's given massive wealth to, Wall Street and so on because Wall Street needs a stable playing field for their continued exploitation of those of us who really work and the rest of nature and society. And that's why they're supporting Biden. Now, as terms of Biden's politics, yes, Biden is the banker senator. He's from Delaware, which is a center of capitalist corruption, a whole state which makes a lot of its money by just um, making fake uh, cover for corporations, it's profoundly evil biden seems a nice guy but not deep not deep in any sense he seems a lot um it's amazing how unintelligent obama was in his actual policies because he just pursued mainstream democratic policies but it's a mistake to say that nothing came out of obama the climate crisis was being addressed the trouble with trump is we've gone in the opposite direction but obama was serious about addressing it in his sort of mainstream typical kinds of way america got a semblance of of health that covered both myself and my son. And now I'm I'm entering retirement, so I have access to that. But even though it was not a great system, it was a big step forward. Of course, he failed miserably in ending our wars abroad, because imperialism is at the heart of the American um, project to this day. But he did some really good things. And what he did for dealing with racism, even though he provoked this deeply racist response, was was still, it was a very it was a net positive. And it's worth pointing out that hardly anyone predicted that Obama could win. And especially among my friends who are African-Americans and scholars of African-American history and the history of slavery, none of them would have predicted, none of them thought Obama had a chance to win. I was actually pretty much involved in parts of the African-American community at the time Obama was running And even those people say, well, we're supporting him, but he doesn't have a chance in hell because America is fundamentally a racist and white supremacist country. But it's not fundamentally a racist and white supremacist. It's got a massive amount of racism and white supremacy in its makeup. But Obama's election shows that, in fact, there's cause for hope. And if I'm going to try to understand what Biden's going to do, we have to remember, it's not just the president that's elected, it's their party. Now, the fact that the Republicans uh, are already with a racist party and were even more corporate than the Democrats, which have two wings, um, makes a big difference. Biden is not the only one being elected, it's the whole Democratic Party. And the corporate ring of the Democratic Party remains a massive problem because they pretty much took over the economic management when Obama was president. But even though Obama faced a crisis, we can now see how he mismanaged aspects of the crisis. And the crisis Biden faces is even better. The model a lot of my friends look to is FDR. FDR was a lot like Biden. He was, uh, in fact, in some ways rich. He was, uh, I mean, worse. He was rich. He was elitist. He was extremely moderate. But he did have this American virtue. He was pragmatic. So he kept looking for solutions. A lot of us have been arguing for a long time that we need radical solutions to the problems America and the world face. And I think this is even more true now and it's less deniable now. So Biden will be forced to support many radical solutions. Yes, he refuses to come out against fracking. That's mainly because of Pennsylvania. Eventually, of course, his administration, because Pennsylvania has fracking, Pennsylvania is a key swing state. So Harris and Biden have toned down. Harris has come out against all fracking. So, um, which is better than your prime minister, The white Obama, I consider him, much more charismatic than he is progressive, Trudeau, who's been horrible on tar sands in Alberta, and better even than our governor in California, who's sort of trying to ease California out of fracking, because California actually is a major oil producer. Most people don't know this and so on. So our current governor, who tries in many ways to be progressive, and he's been better than I thought he would, because he is pretty much just a corporate sort of liberal. But he is tacked left, as Biden and Harris were tacked left. And as Biden will sincerely address the climate problem, um, because it's starting to scare the shit out of the military and the corporations. It's just too real. Now, Trump is capable of such massive denial, and so are the Republicans. Um, then, in fact, they can get away with not uh, addressing the climate problem. But that's why they don't have corporate support. And Trump, uh, you know, he's even losing evangelical support. The one thing his administration has delivered is a bunch of extremely reactionary judges. But there's now a growing movement among uh, right-wing evangelicals, pro-life evangelicals, to just dump Trump because he's just too disgusting. Did your mother in law like have anything to say in defense of Trump's character? Did you think he's a good guy? That he she believed the tapes of him um. He thinks about-
1: that uh, people like Clinton are worse and the Democrats in general, especially Clinton, is a great representative of that, whether whether Bill or even Hillary, they're both worse in her opinion. So
0: ah, well, Clinton Bill in his interpersonal relations to women is very similar to Trump. And I, did, I despise Hillary, uh, but at least she was competent. You know, hundreds of thousands of American lives would have been saved if she was elected president. But the American Imperial Project would have gone on in an accelerated way. <clears throat> and any attempts to deal with climate change would have had as their first priority maintaining and increasing profits for the corporation. So so yes, I am more optimistic than you are. We'll see how that plays out. We'll see what your mother-in-law thinks in four years.
1: Right, That that. Well, there is. So, first, we went a bit of on of a digression here about American politics, which I think it's kind of hard to escape or avoid, just like it's nearly impossible to escape or avoid talking about the pandemic, because both of those events, whether it's the pandemic or the current ongoing election, Uh, in the United States are going to have a tremendous impact on the future. And they are one of those cross-point points in history where there will be dramatic shifts in future history given we go along one choice or another choice. Uh, So in that sense, they're inevitable to not discuss uh, during uh, any kind of futurist-oriented podcast. Mm -hmm. Now... Uh, On the other hand, I want to bring in back technology here a little bit more because while I uh, sort of uh, I hope you're right on most of those points that you gave, I I really do. Uh, My concern still remains that you know there may be a video. We still have like 20 days or something before the election, and there may be a video that emerges of Joe Biden that puts him suddenly to be looked at very differently. You know, public perception nowadays can shift overnight with the help of technology. And so anything I believe in, in our world, whether deliberately or non-deliberately, you know, we had the leaks of Hillary's emails, we had the Democratic Party subversion of uh, Bernie Sanders's uh, candidacy. Uh, we had many things that happened in the previous campaign that first, uh, took out Bernie out of the campaign trail and second uh, tipped the scale of the electorate uh, towards Trump Uh, you know maybe in a minuscule way but in a decisive way and so I'm concerned that those things are the things that technology allows us to do nowadays because it provides this incredible leverage and if anything pops out if Joe Biden makes a mistake or a past mistake suddenly emerges or someone uncovers and leaks it, suddenly Joe Biden may not be the better candidate for whatever dark secret or dead, you know, skeleton may pop out.
0: Because the vote um, for Joe Biden is mainly a vote against Trump. Yeah, I get that. But so Biden would have to do stuff that would be, uh, that would trump Trump. And since Trump has done things like kill 200,000 Americans and been a total asshole and made America much weaker internationally and had a useless failed trade war with China and um, made friends with the Taliban and the South and the North Korean dictator. It's just, for me, it's, I can't imagine anything that um, would be revealed about Biden that would derail the election. The only thing as my oldest son pointed out (coughs) The only thing that could really go, long, go wrong is Biden dying or getting really sick. Well, that's that could throw, that's something. And that could throw the election into confusion. That but certainly no,
1: that, is one option. Yeah, because he can catch COVID and he is of the risk age group for sure. He's older than right. Trump by four years. And it would actually play very much into Trump's hands to say, look, I'm immune. I think uh, maybe I'm immune,
0: you know? I have I, a glow. He has a glow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's it's no it's not you know the um, five 538 uh, still gives uh, Trump a 13 percent chance of winning and uh, there's another 10 10 15 percent chance I would argue that in the states uh the swing states which close um where there are powerful Republicans in state office that where the militia will be encouraged to show up and maybe even um federal officials under Attorney General Barr from Homeland Security to disrupt the voting and throw the voting into um, chaos and maybe suspend the voting in certain cases so that, in fact, different slates of electors are appointed from some of these states. So Biden doesn't get 270. So it goes into the deeply confusing, convoluted and contradictory processes of a, of a hung election, which involved the 12th and the 25th Amendment and the Congress and the Supreme Court. And who knows what would come out of there. But we see that there is a road for Trump keeping power. Not really, I don't think that the 13% chance that 538 gives him, because I do not think he will legitimately win the election. But if he can throw um, the vote counting in Pennsylvania, Florida, Wisconsin, Michigan, and if it comes into play, Ohio and Texas, um, then we could see Trump might manage to scramble into power, or we might enter into a deeply chaotic situation. Now, coming out of this deeply chaotic situation with Trump still in power is unlikely because the military and the FBI and the CIA and Wall Street all hate him and fear him. Now, if uh, he had them as allies, that would be different. But he doesn't. I do think technology is playing an important role in the election right now. That's worth noticing. And one is the incredible improvements in polling. because polling is a science. I don't like saying that because I'm really not fond of polling and the way a lot of candidates craft their message around the polling. If I ever ran for office, one of the first things I would ask my supporters to do is not answer any polls. But that said, you can look closely at how the pollers have dealt with the mistakes of 2016, which were not as great as people thought. A lot of the main pollers, especially 538, had Trump at a pretty real rate of a possible victory, 28 percent. So the fact that he won, sure, um, those aren't great odds, but they're pretty, pretty significant odds. And when you put together the perfect storm of things that happened right near the end, as you pointed out, the Hillary emails, which turned out to be irrelevant, <coughs> Soviet, Russian hacking, not Soviet hacking, and so on, um, and we can see why Trump won. But most of those things don't apply now. And it's worth noticing how the polling has improved and also how their are remains. TV mains so that we can start understanding. It's a good case study for people to see how science works. We'll see if it's more accurate than it was before. They're paying more attention to things like educational level, where people live, et cetera, et cetera. But we're also gonna see the role of social media and the promulgation of wild, stupid ideas and racist ideas, how that can be profoundly destabilizing. Because if you look at the last six months, where all sorts of rumors have led to um, right-wing militants armed with guns showing up at left-wing protests or showing up where there actually is no protest, but they were just told there would be a protest. Um, We can see that there's been a lot of people have been sort of trained through um, the political and social media processes to respond to um, incorrect information, to go out with their guns, to sort of try to preserve their um, uh, rights and privileges. So when the fires were sweeping through Oregon recently, all these messages were sent out saying that anti fa the anti-fascists, which is really more of an uh, amorphous movement than an organized movement actually, and they were setting all these fires. And so armed groups of white men were showing up all over Southern Oregon, stopping uh, civilians and journalists uh, from going down roads because they thought they might be anti fascists starting fires. Well, we now know that those uh, messages were promulgated by the pro-Trump network, and at least one lie was probably put out by a former Republican candidate for governor who came in second and got 100,000 votes. We know other similar panics were spread by Republican or far-right networks. uh, What is it, Europa, what's it called? Uh, Europa Identity, an out-and-out fascist group took over, created some fake anti-fascist sites, and they promulgated a bunch of lies. We know that the Russian hackers, government hackers, send out the same kind of messages. So we will see messages sent out um, saying that, uh, for example, and I'm just guessing what some of the messages might be. But a good message for these people trying to encourage this kind of conflict and to get armed um, militia to show up at voting sites and vote counting sites would be, Uh, illegals are being busted from uh, precinct to precinct in Phoenix, Maricopa County, which is 60% of Arizona's vote, and people need to go to those precincts and challenge everyone who looks illegal, which means everyone who looks Hispanic, which is like half of Arizona. So immediately, unless the police are very effective or unless there's a large number of nonviolent people there to protect the vote, we could easily see voting will be disrupted in situations like that. Or what if the news goes out that the vote is being, uh, votes are being stolen in Scranton or in Lansing, Michigan, Scranton, Pennsylvania or Lansing, Michigan. Maybe Patriots should go to where the vote counting is and and take over the vote counting and make sure it's not being uh, manipulated by those evil Democrats. This is what happened in 2000. But in 2000, it was Roger Stone and that Facebook vice president who led bands of lawyers into the vote counting in Miami-Dade and stuff, um, and to disrupt it. It's actually called the Brooks Brothers riot because they were already wearing their suits. Now the people that the Republicans will trick and and other people, Russians and others will trick into going to these places, many of them will be armed. And they might confront armed left-wing people. There's a um, No Fucking Way coalition, I don't know if you've heard of them, this is an all-black militia yeah i've seen thousand, pictures. yes a thousand armed uh, african-americans at stone mountain where the ku klux klan was founded to confront white um armed militia and they've also been in louisville they're very much in the tradition of the black panther party and the origins of the black panther party actually go back to armed african-american self-defense units in the south right and that's where the black panthers got the little icon but the Black Panther Party uh, was a wonderful organization, actually. Um, I was lucky enough to work with them some after most of the men went to jail and the women were still running their social programs in Oakland. And But they, they took their self-defense seriously. So we are liable to see some serious confrontations. And of course, a significant part of the police, including 161 sheriffs across the U.S. are very right-wing and support um, these crazy ideas, and that'll be spread through technology. So that's pretty interesting. People are tracking that. It'll be very honest, very important to see how well the authorities do in controlling this. Because, But it-
1: that goes directly to the heart of the debate between Cory Doctorow and Shoshana Zuboff, because Shoshana kind of goes along the line of this surveillance capitalism, which kind of brainwashes and manipulates us and therefore directs us. Whereas Corey says that it doesn't direct and manipulate us, only reveals. So it's not that Facebook turned a certain percent of the population suddenly racist and misogynistic and all of that. But no, they, according to him at least, basically revealed those people and allowed allowed them to connect to each other and to organize better than ever in the history. So it's not that they suddenly turned you know, previously good people, now racist. But it is the case, according to Corey, that previous racists that we didn't suspect were racist, that were kind of closet racist, now came out uh, and revealed themselves as racist and connected with other such people and started organizing overtly better than, uh, and engage more than ever before. So that's...
0: I have to read his article, but... Uh, He's wrong about that because of how people's brains work. The the idea, we have what's called cognitive dissonance. You know, we have a modular mind. Many different aspects of our cognition are developed for different reasons. And often they come up with competing solutions to problems. The classic example for me is the trolley problem. Many, many people are willing to throw the switch send the trolley to kill the fat man and save the five children. But many fewer are willing to throw the fat man off the bridge to do the same exact thing. And even fewer are willing to murder the fat man in a hospital to give his organs to the same five children. Well, why is this? Because different parts of our brain reach different ethical and other kinds of decisions. But we seek for unity. So we have seen a lot of people who voted for Obama support Trump. They really aren't necessarily racist. What they are is incredibly pissed off. It's actually you can chart where a lot of these people are. They're in congressional districts that are mainly whites, um, in Appalachia and other parts of the Rust Belt, who had their ho- who lost their houses. The counties that had the highest rate of mortgages that were foreclosed in the Obama solution to the crisis, the bailing out of the banks. Those counties all voted for Trump because they were screwed over. because the Now, they thought right. Trump was anti-banker and was in, had their interests. No, they were fooled by that. But we see people will take their views and modify their views so it fits in with the other people who believe generally as they do. So we're actually seeing, and there was just an article uh, today out about a meeting down in Georgia where the people who are right-wing militia are meeting with the people who are anti-maskers, and they had uh, David Ick from England uh, zoom in, and he's the one who believes Queen Elizabeth is the head of the lizard people ruling the country. And it all interfaces with QAnon, which draws on a lot of very ancient uh, conspiracy theories, but also uses the latest um, propaganda techniques. Um, there's a great series of articles by this guy um, that goes into this and shows the linkage to American uh, psych- psychops from the 50s, 60s, 70s, into today. So people change their positions. They find their allies. The anti-vaccination movement used to be um, very left-wing. There were right-wingers involved, but a lot of people were left-wing. Now a lot of these left-wing anti-vaxxers, they're taking up QAnon. They're signing on to these other claims that come from the right-wing, like that the Michigan governor is an authoritarian and doesn't have the right to implement a medical um, pandemic controls and so on and so forth. So no, people change by who they affiliate with. A lot of people aren't deeply committed to a worldview of their own. They might have a deep prejudice about this or that. Like your mother-in-law seems, uh, and I'm just, you know, spitballing this, but her hatred of the Clintons seems to like warp a lot of her other views. Right. And so even to this day, when the Clintons are long gone, uh, Trump hasn't let go of the Clintons and apparently neither has she. And so that then just ends up tying her to Trump. and then she's tied to what Trump also believes. And you go down the merry path. No, people are constantly changing their mind and forming new alliances. And Dr. is wrong if he thinks that uh, all these people started out this way. They are they're coming to these new conclusions. Um, by finding out who are their allies, who puts forward uh, arguments they find congenial. Of course, there's, uh, many of these people are racist or their racism's been revealed, but they could have gone the other way. We know people stop being racist or change their racist views, and we know people become racist. Um, this has been well studied. It's not like people don't change their minds all the time. He's being very naive. if He doesn't think that these profit-driven, power-driven algorithms aren't bringing together a lot of the worst elements of um how people think and act, because well, that's I'm, what the evidence is.
1: I'm also oversimplifying his position by great. As I said, it's a voluminous uh, piece that that you need to read for yourself because I'm but just, but like... just
0: like… But just like to go to the problem of tech, look at QAnon and how it is spread. And you know, this has been very interesting. I've been a, a, you know, a believer in conspiracy theories my whole life. Kennedy was killed by a conspiracy. I agree with most Americans about that. Lincoln was killed by a conspiracy. Many Americans and other people don't even know that history, that the the, the Secretary of, of War and all sorts of other cabinet members were attacked at the same time. And the evidence is pretty strong that the Confederate uh, government, you know, let loose Booth and his conspirators on Lincoln. And I've read the Illuminati books and I read... Uh, All the stuff that later turned into the Da Vinci Code books, you know, and so on. So I believe conspiracies happen and some are true and some aren't. But what's interesting about QAnon is how it's exploded with a conspiracy theory that's very nebulous, But we can see it includes a lot of these links to classic anti-Semitic conspiracy tropes and to the reality of the Masons, which was a conspiracy trying to change society pretty much for the better, in my opinion. They believed in liberal democracy and making the Catholic Church weaker, which is why the Catholic Church still hates the Masons and so on and so forth. Um, For a while, Masonic the P2 Masonic Lodge in the 1980s took over Italy. A Masonic Lodge took over Italy pretty much and murdered people pretending to be left-wingers, even though they use right-wingers to do these murders, is agent provocateurs, um, that large included the heads of the main security services in Italy. So this is how the world does work. But QAnon is particularly interesting because it's not as clear-cut a conspiracy. Often these conspiracies, they would tell you everything that was true and you just consume them. But QAnon, and the main reason for its massive expansion, is you have to figure out yourself, you plug in, it's sort of a plug and play, conspiracy theory, and you have to solve these riddles and there's no one answer. So when predictions come out that Trump really wasn't sick with the virus, he was hiding so that the Clinton and all the other satanic pedophiles could be arrested, And a significant number of QAnon people now believe they're lizard people too, but not a majority. But David Icke has been successful in promulgating his particular idiocy. Um, But then that didn't happen. So what did the QAnon people do? Well, they go, well, that was a misinterpretation because it's also enigmatic. It's solving a puzzle. It's interactive, right? Um, And that's why, in fact, shutting down a lot of the sites where new people are sucked in and can start learning to play the game and they think, so much of what they uncover on the internet must be true because it was hard to find. It used to be newbies would just think everything on the internet was true. Well, now everyone knows that's not true because a lot of the mainstream um, media is fake news or lame news, and a lot of it isn't true. It's certainly biased, incredibly. But now if you dig in and you do a lot of your own research, suddenly then you can believe it's true. Well, that's not true either, but it's made QAnon grow only because of the technology. And it's become an incredibly powerful force very quickly because it is so nebulous. It's really the first postmodern conspiracy theory. Um, drawing on the older modern conspiracy theories and even ancient conspiracy theories, but with this dynamic, interactive, um, sort of uh, not set in stone uh, dynamic. First person. Uh, yeah, very person. But it will grow, you know, as it's repressed in the... Um, main social media platforms and so on, I suspect it will um, not keep growing at the same rate. Who knows how long we'll have it with us. It's so stupid. Uh, But when Trump's out of power and once he's in jail or in exile in Russia or wherever he ends up, we'll just have to see. I'm very curious. We know, though, that actually um, when cults are proven wrong, they often just double down. There was a famous case of a cult predicting the end of the world in the 1950s and uh, these scientists were studying it, sociologists, and when they went up to wait for the end of the world, and then when it didn't come, they go, oh, we saved the world with all our praying. And this has been true of all the millennial cults, the Seventh-day Adventists, the Anabaptists, the alien cults, they all believe the cult even more after it's been proven to be wrong. So that might be true of the QAnon people. But the big issue is, do they keep recruiting? Those cults actually ran into a, a, a limit in terms of how much they could keep growing. And I'm hoping that QAnon will reach that limit when Trump is thrown out of office. But we will yeah. probably have it with us for a long time.
1: And I'm concerned that may be true even for Trump supporters. They may be doubling down, too, even when he's been proven to be wrong so many times, or out of line, or ridiculous, or idiotic, or you name it, narcissistic, selfish, uh, criminal. But it doesn't seem to stick any of it. So
0: he's down now often below 40% uh, and it is malignant narcissistic personality disorder. It's an actual disorder and it clearly applies to Trump. But actually, I think it would be good if after Trump is defeated the hardcore 35% or whatever of Americans who support Trump stay with Trump because this would be the death of the Republican Party, the demographics. And the general idiocy and the misogyny of that worldview will doom the Republican Party. And it, it deserves to die. And then the Democratic Party will split and will have a liberal party and will have the corporate Democrats form what used to be the old Republican-Democratic uh, corporate consensus. Because all during the Cold War, as the American empire flourished and grew to dominate the world, the um, Republican Party and the corporate Democrats all cooperated. Now the Republican Party has given up on the empire. So that's why Wall Street and the big businesses aren't happy. And um, the corporate Democrats are now um, been reduced to a minority in the Democratic Party, a very powerful minority, enough to shut down Bernie Sanders, for example. But not, uh, they aren't dominant like they were. They cannot stop the Green New Deal. They cannot stop and end the fracking. They cannot stop universal health care. All of these things will happen. And universal health care is, of course, in the corporate interest. American corporations have to compete with Canadian and European companies that don't have to worry about the health care of their workers. This is a major disadvantage for American capitalists, and many of them know this now. They would be happy to have um, only the, the vultures that profit off uh, privatizing and capitalizing on medical care. They are against, of course, uh, universal health care in the United States, because that's their whole margin of profit. They will go down fighting viciously. But the other parts of the capitalist uh, ascendancy, they want universal health care. It improves their competitiveness versus Europe, China, and uh, the the little tigers and dragons, whatever, in the East Asia and Canada. Right. So.
1: Well, Chris, uh, uh, so I, I have to say I agree mostly with you because my position is somewhere between Corey and Shoshana. I, I do you know, believe as Martian McLuhan said that, you know, first we build the technology, then the technology builds us. And I think that's a good example of that. So there's this loop uh, to the degree that that's actually happening right now that we can debate like how effective the current system is, but it's bound to be more and more effective as you pointed out with all of those developments in, you know, neuroscience and so on and so on. So even if we're not there yet, uh, quite as much as Shoshana claims, We are going towards that direction. Um, I think also Corey makes a number of good points. For example, about how we should treat them not necessarily with legislative or or, uh, uh, sort of regulatory uh, sort of treatment, but rather in in terms of breaking them down as monopolies uh, as a more effective way to deal with them as as an issue. So, and in some ways, they both agree that there, there are danger, that big tech is a danger to democracy and the world in general. They just disagree on the reasons why that's the case and, and sort of the, the, the mechanisms in which it works. But they both agree that there are danger and that we need to deal with that danger. Uh, However, I'm afraid we have sort of digressed very much towards uh, becoming a a podcast of of American politics today, which was not my original intention. Uh, But as I said, in some ways, we live in a world right now, especially, you know, you being American, who is very engaged and very informed uh, for the last 50 years, perhaps, and and me being a Canadian next to you, uh, watching from up north. You know, and and this being a major event, not only domestically for the United States of America, but also uh, sort of geographically for North America in general, and even by extension, the whole world and our planet, because America has uh, a huge impact on our planet. And as uh, I, I think it was Pierre Elliott Trudeau, one of our prime ministers, who said that, you know, living next to the United States, is like sleeping next to an elephant because every time the elephant sneezes, we have a thunderstorm in Canada, right? So, so this is kind of like what's going on in Canada right now, given the polarization and the 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 conflicts ongoing with respect to to the ongoing election in the United States, uh, and so therefore it was very hard to avoid talking about all of these issues, but if we are to bring back the conversation to technology. So first, let me ask you this. Uh, What's the best place for people to find more about you and your work in general, and the book that you're publishing in particular, the latest book of yours in particular?
0: Just just search for my name. I'm building my website back up again, but I have to say, teaching five classes, the pandemic and getting the book out, and writing that article on viruses, uh, I'm behind on that. So people can just um, Google me and um, feel free to write me. If I have um, articles I can send and Postmodern War is free online, uh, people can read read that stuff. I'm hoping now maybe our next talk won't be seven and a half years because I always enjoy this. And maybe in six months or so we could meet and actually just talk about the cyborg stuff because we'll be past, um, Past this current crisis, and I hope all feeling better, and then I could talk about the cyborgs because, in a way, this book was sort of my goodbye to the cyborg issue. I feel I've said all I want to say. As you pointed out, a lot of things I thought would happen um, 20 years ago have turned out to be true. The same basic issues are in play. I've made my interventions. I don't see myself writing about cyborgs uh, again, really. I'm writing a book on big genetics and California identity, I'm writing a book on nonviolence. I'm writing a book on evolution, on taking evolution seriously, which I feel both people on the left and the right don't do. I'll probably turn my virus uh, is a language article into a little book too. So um, maybe in six months or a year, we can meet uh, sooner than last time. And maybe even before I get back to Canada, which of course, if I do come to Toronto, I'll definitely stay high. Be fun to actually go out for a coffee or a dinner with real people in another place. I miss traveling so much. So yes, I don't think it was a mistake though for us to focus so much on the current situation because we are at a crossroads. 2020 will be seen as a major fulcrum for the future of humanity. If we have a future that looks back at this history, we will see that this like 1968, like 1918, um, like 2001, this is a key point in human um, development. And in fact, more important than all three of those this combines all sorts of incredible um, dynamics in one really exciting, scary year. So we had to talk about it, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, and and I agree with you. And I'm also looking forward to our next meeting in person or to our next interview. So I'm totally open to, to do another one where we focus exclusively on this book, especially since... Uh, Given the, the the sort of uh, the situation where your publisher kind of failed to send me the book for mm-hmm. weeks and weeks on end, uh, I was actually unable to read it ahead of this interview, right. uh, and so that will be helpful and, and appropriate to revisit that situation. You also answered uh, uh, my question of what's next to uh, uh, in in the life of Chris Hables Gray, so right. that's good. We know that you're moving beyond this issue. Um, what's the final message though how should we wrap up our conversation today it was kind of a two hour long discussion of sort of uh, cyborg uh, pandemic foresight past predictions, current situation American domestic politics, the Trump uh, re-election campaign conspiracy theories uh, all kinds of things mixed together so what how do you want to send us away? What's the most important thing we should take away from this conversation with you today?
0: Well, back in the 70s, there was a radical uh, analyst on the radio, Danny Schechter, the news Dissector, And his tagline was, if you don't like the news, go make some of your own. And what I would say to end this is that we have agency. We don't know if what we're doing is going to make a difference. But it's possible one little thing we do, one little technology we develop, one act of courage to confront evil could be the one that makes the difference. And in fact, what we all do together will make the difference. We are citizens. We are cyborg citizens. And we can either make that a reality, make our future democratic with a small d, make a just and sustainable future, or not. Certainly if we don't act, then there's no hope. So we have to go out and make the news we want to see.
1: Make the news you want to see. Wow, that's a fantastic parting message. So Chris Hable Gray, great. Thank you very much for being oh, with us again. thank
0: you. It's always a pleasure. I look forward to talking again and meeting in person too.
1: If you guys enjoy this show you can help me make it better in a couple of ways you can go and write a review on iTunes or you can simply make a donation